This is Roderick Heath, welcoming you to the first ever podcast for Film Freedonia. For this debut, I'm going to be discussing, as I often do in written essay form, a film by an important director that is nonetheless not terribly well-known or appreciated. In this case, it's a film Robert Rossum wrote and directed in 1956, Alexander the Great. Robert Rossum is remembered today chiefly for two films. His political tale, All the King's Men, 1949, captured the Best Picture Oscar. The Hustler, 1961, gave Paul Newman his most iconic role and helped define a new school of urban realism matched to sifting psychology in American movie-making that arguably helped create a template for the independent film movement. Rossen, born in New York's Lower East Side in 1906 to Russian Jewish parents, made his name as a screenwriter specialising in social issue dramas and crime epics like They Won't Forget, 1937, and The Roaring Twenties, 1939. He debuted as a director with Johnny O'Clock, 1947, thanks to the support of star Dick Powell, and his second film, Body and Soul, 1948, put him on the map with the story of a boxer who eventually defies corruption and bullying cabals to determine his own fate with his famous line in fending off rapacious gangsters, What are you going to do, kill me? Everybody dies. Body and Soul established Rossen's interest in tough, trenchant, streetwise tales about individuals at war with both the world and their own innermost natures. All the King's Men, an adaptation of Robert Penn Warren's novel, mostly divested the book's meditations on power and the place of the intellectual in modern America, to offer instead a pseudo-Shakespearean study of its anti-hero, Willie Stark, inspired by the populist Louisiana governor, Huey Long, who sets out to battle entrenched powers for the sake of the common man, but eventually is rotted out by the same forces. The Hustler took on Walter Tevis's novel to offer Rossin's most refined character study, the drama of Fast Eddie Felson, whose superlative gifts as a pool player are foiled by his lack of authentic character, and whose eventual gaining of wisdom and self-control comes at a heavy price. Rossen surely empathised. His directorial career and ultimately his life were badly stunted by his bruising encounter with the HUAC investigations of the early 1950s, when he was targeted for his leftist affiliations. After first trying to work around blacklisting by making Mambo, 1953, in Italy, he eventually caved and became a friendly witness like Ilya Kazan, although where Kazan's career seemed comparatively unharmed, Russen had difficulty regaining his momentum and was dogged by the consequences of his decision to an early grave. By the time of his last film, Lilith, 1964, his characteristic hard and worldly tone had caved in, to study the dreamy mental landscape of a troubled young woman. What connects most of Rossen's films, regardless, is the theme of individuals who find themselves overwhelmed in pursuing the goals society thrusts upon them, goals of success in wealth and power, and who eventually have to negotiate their own reckoning. For his first film after escaping the blacklist, Rossen tackled the largest possible canvas to pursue that theme in the tale of Alexander II, King of Macedon, remembered to history as Alexander the Great. In its efforts to outpace television's encroachment, Hollywood began making big-budget historical dramas filmed in blazing colour, a style kicked off by Cecil B. DeMille's Samson and Delilah, 1949, 
and extended by the likes of Quo Vadis, 1951, and The Robe, 1953. These big, diverting, parochial tales invoking religious myth history would reach a height with the likes of The Ten Commandments, 1956, and Ben-Hur, 1959, before the epic fashion evolved into something more complex in the 1960s. As a mode, these kinds of blockbusters seem the polar opposite of what a director like Rossin usually aimed for, but he engaged it on his own terms. Rossin was ahead of the curve as he tried to forge a new idea of the historical epic, one that feels a lot more familiar today than it would have in 1956 in his attempts to knit together serious historiography and a highly psychologised portrait of one of the most famous yet maddeningly enigmatic people who ever lived. Rossin's film never gained much appreciation, and the film had been virtually forgotten by the time Oliver Stone got around to making his own big-budget, economically disastrous and aesthetically fractured take on The King with 2004's Alexander. The two films tend to mirror each other's faults. Russen's cool, restrained visual style, constantly and carefully mindful of the position of his actors in relation to the landscape, is the opposite of Stone's baroquely stylized spectacle and madcap energy. Despite the much greater resources available to Stone and the lack of fetters of censorship and theme, his work still managed to be less intelligible than Russen's. But Russen strains against limitations of production and editing room tampering. The story of Alexander and the forces he unleashed in world history might well be too large, too factious and complex to be encompassed by the niceties of commercial cinema. Both Rossin and Stone responded to the problem by recreating Alexander in their own image. For Rossin, that meant seeing Alexander as a figure similar to his best-known protagonists, blessed with unique talents and determined to exercise them, but also riven with covert neuroses as individual identity fractures under the pressure of insanely divergent prisms of conceiving the world, temptations towards godlike power and base human frailty, trying to coexist in a single frame. Russen's Alexander squirms under the twin identities imbued by his parents King Philip, Frederick March, and his mother Olympia, Danielle Derrieux, an uneasy union between a bullish warrior king and an icy priestess queen. Philip dashes home to his capital Pella from the battlefront when he hears he's become a father, only to find that Olympia is convinced, through the advice of her Egyptian soothsayer, Helmut Dantine, that Alexander is the son of Zeus rather than her all-too-human husband. Philip has infinitude of lovers and is obsessed with elevating his formerly backward and peripheral nation to an exalted status amongst the states of Greece. Philip entrusts Alexander's education to Aristotle, Barry Jones, who admires his young pupil, but also warns Philip of his splintered nature and the potential danger in ignoring it. Alexander himself, growing into the form of Richard Burton, chafes at being kept away from his father's side and the chance for glory, as Macedonia's brilliant army slowly overcomes the other Greek states. Rossin conceives of ancient statecraft as an extension of royal personality, which runs hot and cold. Defined by the essential Oedipal conflict between Philip and Alexander, a conflict then transposed onto a geopolitical stage. Alexander longs to join his father's army and gain a share of his glory in preparation for his own eventual ascension to the throne. But Philip is justifiably scared of plots and manipulations, as well as also occasionally protecting his own prerogatives to make and break his heir. 
Alexander constantly finds himself a pawn in the power battle between his father and his mother, who remain married but intensely alienated, and Philip seems to always be considering remarriage to produce a new heir. Philip is usually glimpsed in the company of his generals and courtiers, a man of dense, jostling, very human society, whilst Olympia maintains a vigil from the portico of the royal palace, gazing out into distant fields of fate, stark in Olympian remove. When Alexander is finally called to service, it's to keep order in Macedonia, whilst his father fights the other Greek states. So he quickly proves his mettle by putting down rebellious hill tribes and then making them rebuild a city with the name of Alexandropolis. Philip rebukes Alexander for his actions, but also appoints him commander of one wing in the fateful Battle of Chaeronea, where the Macedonians take on and finally subjugate a Greek coalition headed by Athens. Alexander saves his father's life during the battle, intervening to fight off warriors who have him cornered. Rosson spares a surprising amount of time dealing with the intellectual and civic background of the age, commencing the film with one of the famous oratorical battles between Demosthenes, Michael Horden, and Aeschines, William Squire, as they behold the rise of Philip and the birth of his heir. Later, Rosson spares time to depict Alexander's interactions with Aristotle, absorbing his wisdom and cultural propaganda, deployed in a fashion that reveals Rosson's underlying political parable regarding McCarthyism, the Cold War, and American imperialism in the post-war period. The Persian way of life has the seed of death and fear in it, Aristotle intones, mimicking Cold War rhetoric about communists before more loudly announcing over a montage of his pupils schooling themselves for war, We Greeks are the chosen, the elect, our culture is the best, our civilization the best, our men the best. All others are barbarians, and it is our moral duty to conquer them, enslave them, and if necessary, destroy them. And making fun of foreign gods, he says, The gods of the Greeks are made in the image of man, not men with birds' heads and bulls with lions' heads, but men who can be understood and felt. Alexander's life course reveals both the potential grandeur and danger in allowing the merely human to annex such an exalted sphere as divine status, as he imbues his military mission with the quality of something larger, a great act of cultural and philosophical adventure, something that must assimilate the world. Rossen digs into the question of political messaging in a way that's authentic for the period he's portraying, but also made coherent for any time, as Alexander surveys various forms of propaganda presented in the form of culture, in the idealized statuary of Athenian pretense, and the awesome scale of Persian infrastructure, whilst Demosthenes makes quips about good comment being bought with Macedonian gold, and finishes up withering in depression when his rival announces to the crowd that Alexander must be worshipped as a god, the last, hardest, most awesome stage in achieving hegemony. Rosson cuts between the different invocations of the Greek and Persian leaders before battle, laying bare the distinction of their cultural outlooks and ways of conceiving the universe, and of course noting how every side thinks God is in their corner. The frontiers of cultures and nations are nothing, however, compared to the basic spurs of familial identity, sexuality, and generational tension, all of which define Alexander's upbringing his own steely, mercurial persona contrasting his father's swaggering, earthy machismo. Rosson devotes himself to exploring Alexander's psychological formation, 
Becoming a being Aristotle describes to Philip. He is logic and he is dreams. He's warrior and he's poet. He's man and he's spirit. He's your son, but he's also hers. Philip, meanwhile, chafes at being labelled a barbarian by the Greek elites and quietly fumes over Alexander's supposed divine status, a discomforting prospect for a man who wants to order the world according to his own whim, as it suggests some other force at work, more likely his wife's ambition, rather than the will of Zeus. After gaining his greatest victory, Philip gets drunk and dances upon the bluffs, overlooking the corpse-strewn field of Caronea, chanting Philip the Barbarian in his exultation, yet revealing himself as still dogged by a potent inferiority complex. Philip the Barbarian! Philip the Barbarian! Philip the Barbarian! Philip the Barbarian! Dancing over your dead bodies! Your Shinian! Father, you're Philip of Macedonia, now Captain General of all Greece. You're right! My bit! My kingdom! My Greece! Not yours! He's fetched down by his own son, an Athenian general Memnon, Peter Cushing. Philip relents towards the other Greeks when he sobers up and sends Alexander in his stead to negotiate a peace treaty. It's death of a salesman in sandals. Alexander encounters Demosthenes and Memnon's wife Barsine, Claire Bloom, who attracts his eye and mind, and gets in a wry dig at Athenian self-aggrandizing, as he scans rows of statues of idealized males' physiques and questions where all these incredible specimens were at Caronea. Alexander lets his own grandiosity slip as he describes the potential in unity and purpose for Greece in invading Persia, a nation with a destiny, a divine mission to bring Greek culture and civilization to all the world. Or have your ideas grown greater than your men? And now you have that unity and strength to fulfill that mission. And this is what I've brought you. Alexander soon finds his position precarious, however, as Philip celebrates the birth of another son by his new wife Eurydice, Marissa de Leza, daughter of his loyal general, Attalus Stanley Baker precipitating a vicious exchange between Alexander and his new father-in-law, and driving him and his mother into exile. They're allowed to return when Eurydice gives birth to a son, but Alexander has forbidden the company of some of his hero-worshipping school friends. Attalus humiliates one of them, Pausanias, Peter Wingard, before the court by questioning what he'll do without his god Alexander around, to Philip's great amusement. Pausanias gets drunk with Olympia, who steers him towards avenging himself. The next day, Pausanias stabs Philip dead as he and Alexander are entering the palace. Alexander promptly dispenses justice by slaying Pausanias and vows over his dead father that he did not arrange the deed. Eurydice kills herself and her son in fear Alexander might torment them and Attalus tries to assassinate him, earning his own death. Alexander survives nonetheless to be hailed by the army as the new king, and he sets about leading a Greek coalition to war in Asia Minor against the mighty Persian Empire, ruled by Darius II, Harry Andrews, with a cohort of trusted helpmates including his friends Clytus, Gustavo Rojo, Ptolemy, Virgilio Tezera, and Philotus, Ruben Royo, as well as the latter's father, Parmenion, Niall McGuinness. I now claim the whole of Asia... Land won by the spear.
Rossin might well have helped prepare ground for the oncoming boom in Italian peplum cinema. Baker and Andrews had both featured in another proto-peplum, Robert Wise's film Helen of Troy, a year earlier. Rossin's visual approach here rejects the plush decorative effects inspired by Renaissance and Victorian academic art most concurrent Hollywood historical epics offered, in exchange for a spare, stripped-down look that often feels more like a rough draft for Pier Paolo Pasolini's blend of the raw and the abstract in his historical films. The cinematographer was Robert Kraska, who had won an Oscar for his work on his famously skewed images on The Third Man, 1949. His approach here couldn't be more different. His location shooting portraying an ancient society that's stout and aspiring in its important structures, but abutting cities of shacks and ruins shattered by warfare, as if we stumbled into a neo-realist work. Rossin's classical Greece and Persia are harsh, sunstruck places. Armour, costumes, landscape, all intensely tactile, battle scenes chaotic and dusty, rather than spectacular and slickly choreographed. He shoots as much of the film outdoors as possible. Interior scenes are gently stylized with use of widescreen frames and bright, unrealistic lighting to accentuate a fresco-like quality to his mise-en-scene. Actors swathed in colorful costumes, striking postures and angles against pale walls. On a dramatic level, Alexander the Great feels close to the stark, intimate quality a lot of straightened TV productions were wielding at the time. Cushing as Memnon strengthens the connection with that kind of TV drama, as Cushing had found fame on television. Bizarrely, his longtime Hammer Horror co-star Christopher Lee's voice can be heard very distinctly, dubbed over Helmut Dantine. Cushing is cunningly cast with his wiry, verbally dexterous intensity as Memnon, who at first befriends Alexander but soon becomes a dogged enemy. Memnon makes hapless attempts at a principled form of dissent once he realises that Alexander wants not to be just a war chief, but a grand autocratic power. Do you place value on pledges given at the point of spears? If they are broken, I'll not hesitate at the gates of Athens as my father did. I do not doubt that, Alexander, and you do not have my oath. For it is sacred only when, as a Greek, I have free choice. Memnon goes into exile rather than swear allegiance to him. But fighting as a mercenary for Darius, he finds himself abandoned and vastly outnumbered against Alexander's invading horde at the Battle of Granicus, the first big clash of the war. Rossin uses Memnon as a figure of commentary on the plight of anyone who, as Rossin did, tries to speak truth to power, but finds power speaks its own truth right back. You fight for pay, Alexander tells him in contempt. Earn it. After having his attempts to plead quarter for his men denied by a contemptuous Alexander, Memnon gets chopped down on the battlefield along with his fellow mercenaries. When Alexander encounters Barsine again, she's captured human chattel, and Alexander forcibly beds her, only to seem ashamed of it afterwards. You will be treated according to your rank, he tells her, only for Barsine to point to another captive woman tossed into the street. My rank is hers. Barsine nonetheless becomes a convert to Alexander's mission as well as his most loyal lover, suggesting Alexander isn't the only person split by duality of nature. Indeed, Rossin diagnoses it as a general state of being. The borders between binaries, male and female, body and spirit, east and west, between cultures and countries and forms of political power, and colossal strength lies in the hand 
of anyone who offers people the unique shock of being led from one state of being to another. Soon after decrying Alexander from the shell-shocked ranks of the conquered, Barsin is leading a gang of camp followers with torches to help burn down captured Babylon as part of an exercise in world-renewing fervour. When Alexander haplessly protests such arson, Barsin accuses him of being seduced by oriental opulence and abandoning his mission to remake the world in a Greek image. Whilst his warriors become increasingly unhappy over a long exile, and being asked to make concessions to the Persian lifestyle. The courtly Majus encouraged Alexander's faith in himself as overlord and godhead. Finally, Alexander's world-conquering quest comes to a queasy halt in India, when he quarrels with a drunken, resistant Clytus, who berates Alexander for forgetting who he is and assuming god-king status. Alexander reactively slays Clytus with a thrown spear, only to decide his friend was right as he mourns him, and direct the army back to Persia. Rossin incorporates some of the possibly apocryphal episodes from the various histories of Alexander, like the legendary scene of him cutting the Gordian knot, and the rhyming episodes of his saving his father's life at Carinaea, and Clytus saving Alexander in turn at Granicus, moments that ironically bind the players in roles of resentful gratitude. Alexander fully understands the ready-made symbolic potency of such tales, however. Rossin was obliged by 1950s censorship to avoid any overt mentions of Alexander's supposed bisexuality. Rossin suggests it as artfully as he can, however, in the faintly queeny fury of Pausanias when Philip humiliates him, suggesting the depth of his and Alexander's connection, and in a framing when Alexander tries to hold his conversation with Barsine with the rather prominent buttocks of a statue of a muscular male figure in the back of the frame, indicating his previous sexual experience. One of the bigger pieces of license involves merging Alexander's eventual wives, Roxana, a princess from Bactria near the Caspian Sea, and another, Statira, a daughter of Darius. There's much that's fine to Alexander the Great, but much that's awkward too, and it's one of those films that feels all the more interesting and frustrating because of its evident failings. It's a very different film to a later Burton-starring epic, Joseph L. Mankiewicz's Cleopatra, 1963, but like that film, it was released to audiences in a severely curtailed form, and was plainly a work of directorial ambition trying to offer tart and meaningful political commentary under the cover of historical dreaming. Russen decried the severely edited version of the film that was eventually released, a version he said cut out many of his carefully developed psychological details and parallels, and left the latter part of Alexander's adventure reduced to a few paltry montage images. These include his invasion of India and deadly march back through the Iranian deserts, as well as an increasingly mean-spirited turn of later campaigns, including the paranoia-induced assassination of Parmenion and Philotus. Other scenes don't seem to have been edited properly and feel patched together. When Alexander has his first bout of epilepsy, a clumsy showreel of earlier scenes of import is projected over his squirming face, the sort of bad movie trick that satirists had been making a meal of for decades. Casting Burton probably seemed a very natural move at the time, being as he was a young, virile actor with Shakespearean training. A perfect blend to put across a character accomplished in both warrior grit and intellectual attainment. He already knew his way around this kind of period fear after starring in The Robe, Burton grasps Rossin's concept of Alexander as a schismatic creature, 
able to convey both the haughty aristocrat and the overboiling incarnation of will, his blue eyes flashing with fanatical self-belief, and gift for projecting violence verbally, anticipating his turn in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, 1966, when he mocks his father during one of their quarrels. This is the man preparing to pass from Europe into Asia, but he cannot even pass from one couch to another. But his performance is another of those weirdly uneven turns his film career proved busy with. Age 29, he was the right age to play Alexander, but already seems far too mature, and his performance nudges the overripe as Alexander becomes more overtly neurotic. He also seems uncomfortable providing heroic beefcake whilst reclining in a miniskirt. Marlon Brando was shoved into a few too many poorly fitting movie roles around this time, but he might well have made a better meal of this part, with his more galvanic talent for physical expression. That said, March is characteristically terrific as Philip, with his mix of hot-blooded intransigence and intelligence. Daria, billed as the French star, is effective as the proud, scheming Olympia, and Andrews is surprisingly moving as Darius, whose doom is the perpetual partner in fate, with Alexander's triumph. The film's dramatic high point tellingly belongs not to Alexander himself, but to Darius, as he's driven into the wilderness, and finally stabbed to death by some of his bodyguards, who hope for Alexander's favour. Darius is left riddled with gory wounds, perched upon his mobile throne, lording it over a frontier wasteland. Alexander finds his body, and reads a letter he leaves for him, imploring him to marry Roxanne and bring peace, a lesson Alexander takes too long to take to heart. But when Alexander does at last return to Babylon after his exhausting Indian campaign, and sets about trying to unite the worlds he's conquered, Rossin uses it as a cue for perhaps the most graceful moment of his directing career. His camera surveys the ranks of Greek warriors being married to Persian ladies at the same time Alexander marries Roxanne, all bedecked in bright hues and flowers as if it's not simply a wedding rite but an invocation of spring and renewal. This moment of florid romanticism dispels the warlike and desolating tension of what's gone before, and gives brief but eloquent voice to the concept of fusion realised on all levels, breaking down the many boundaries the narrative has charted, all realised in one gliding, unifying camera movement. But Alexander is soon delivered up to fate, and cheated of the chance to see the seed he's planted grow, as he's stricken with illness and wastes away before his subjects and Rossin's more characteristic tone of noble fatalism coincides with Alexander's recorded pith perfectly. He responds to the question of who his empire will pass on to with, To whom do you leave your empire? To the strongest. You can all but hear Willie Stark, Eddie Felson, and the rest of Rossin's brilliant yet fatally flawed heroes laughing without sentiment. Only sympathy. That has been the first ever podcast for Film Fredonia. I'm Roger Keith. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. Wonders are many, but none is more wonderful than man himself. <laughs> <laughs>